Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 10th, 2021. This is episode 2823 of the Survival Podcast. I got a cool one for you today. A change-up. We haven't talked about this subject in well over a year. How about mushroom production with Sean McDyer? We're going to have him on in just a moment. He runs a farm up in Kalispell, Montana uh, that is called Sun Hands Farm, and mushrooms are one of the main things that they produce. Uh, it's pretty awesome. He's a good dude, and we'll have a long discussion about mushroom production and how you can do it for yourself and why you might want to in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is... The Wealth Steading Podcast with John Pugliano. Um, man, I'll tell you what. I am so blessed that John Pugliano is part of this community. And when he told me he wanted to become an official show sponsor, I was like, of course. We'll, we'll figure out how to make that happen. The Wealth Steading Podcast is an incredible source of knowledge where John cuts through the BS and the jargon and gives you the straight scoop on what's going on in the financial markets. He's an amazing dude. I really think if you've, you know, listened to the show any length of time, you know, I know you've heard from him before. But if you've never checked out the Wealth Studying Podcast, you might want to get on over there and check it out today. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits.com is this great conglomerate of opportunity is the way I see it. So, first of all, it allows people to get experience with using tools and building things. Just that in of itself, like, we're at a day and age today where people are, are the least capable at a time when the most information of how to do things is there. So they make knife building easy with kit knives, just like the name says. And if you need help with knowing how to do things, they have great books, videos, DVDs, etc. They have a bunch of Kydex stuff as well, leather materials to make sheets, all that stuff, exotic materials. And if you're a master bladesmith, they even have some really exotic steels where you can form your own blades, etc. Any level that you're looking for. You'll find it at KnifeKits.com, who is a long-term sponsor that has sponsored this show for over a decade. It can be a gateway into a hobby, a small business, a full-time business. Who knows? Check it out today, KnifeKits.com. I just say, what kid wouldn't want to own a knife they built with their dad or their mom? Just, just think about that. All right, with that, let's go ahead and start getting into today's subject. I want to lead off today with a quote, and I wasn't sure what to do. I, I thought even maybe I'd do a mushroom quote, you know, and I just decided, no, I wanted to go a different way. I was just kind of going through some stuff over at Quote Fancy, and I found this quote by Aristotle. And I thought, boy, this is a quote for today. And I don't mean today as in this particular day, February the 10th. I mean this time in history, right? He said, courage is the first virtue that makes all other virtues possible. And I want you to think about the world we live in today where they've turned fear into a virtue. And what did I say about that a, a, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago? I said when they turned fear into a virtue, it meant that it made those with courage have opportunities. If, 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 and it also made, you know, if, if fear was, was a virtue, it made the, the average person see people of courage as the enemy. They've turned things up on their head, but Aristotle was, was right. Everything you can think of that's truly virtuous, and this is one of the, one of the true tragedies of modern wokeism, right, is that they've taken words that are perfectly good words 
and they've so damaged them with bullshit that you hear the word and your mind wants to repel it. So when you hear virtue right now, you probably think of virtue signaling, right? And I understand why, right? So the virtue signalers, right? Um, it doesn't change that virtues are good things. And if you think about every truly virtuous characteristic in human beings, how can one express that true virtue in their life if they lack courage? If they lack courage. So think of something that is virtuous, like, oh, I don't know, just doing the right thing for the right reason. When society or those in control decide that the right thing is the wrong thing, Right, That's when doing the right thing is virtuous. Doing the right thing when everybody else is doing it and everybody says it's the right thing and you know it's just easy to do the right thing. It's not so much virtuous then. Doing the right thing when it's hard, that's virtuous. It always requires courage. Telling the truth is easy when it's in your best interest and every, no one's going to get mad about it. Telling the truth when you can get hurt from it, that's hard. That's when telling the truth becomes a virtue, and it requires first courage. And you can go down, and I guarantee you, almost every behavior that a human can exhibit that truly is a virtuous behavior, if that individual lacks courage, at any point when it's actually difficult to do the right thing, whatever that might be, they won't. Courage is the first virtue that makes all other virtues possible. And at a time when virtue signaling is at its height, I would submit to you that this might be the least virtuous American society in the history of the nation. Because when we turn fear into a virtue, we actually destroyed what it meant to be virtuous. Just something to think about as you live your life in this evolving time. I don't care what they say. Courage still is the first virtue that makes all other virtues possible. Aristotle wasn't wrong then, and if we brought him back today, he'd probably be pissed off, but he'd still be right. With that, let's go ahead and get into our uh, subject today, which again is on mushroom cultivation, uh, doing it at home, uh, taking it kind of the next level, the most basic low-tech to the high-tech methodology. We're going to talk about it all today with our special guest, Sean McDyer. With that, hey, Sean, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, great to be here. Man, I'm glad to have you on to talk about mushrooms. I haven't had anybody to talk uh, on to talk about that for a long time now. Um, I am a fan of mushrooms to eat. I have been very poor at growing them here in the dry heat of Texas. Uh, maybe you could help me out with that today. But before we dig into that, can you tell people just a little bit about who you are, man? Like, how, how did you get into what you do now in life? Like, take us back to like high school, you're spacing out, trying to figure out what to do with yourself and, and how that leads you here. Sure, yeah. It's been a pretty long and windy road for myself, not the traditional path. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, pretty much as far removed from anything agricultural as you can imagine. Um, so the only exposure I had to ag or anything outdoors related was, you know, going hunting and fishing with my dad. As a kid with him and my brother, we would go hunt birds, um, another small game in Lancaster, which is a huge agricultural area, and then we would go hunting deer upstate Pennsylvania, you know, in the 
only real forested area with, you know, access to public lands there. And then ironically, we, I mean, I grew up less than an hour away from Kennett Square, which is like the mushroom capital of the United States, where over 60% of mushroom production in the U.S. comes from, but had literally zero interest in mushrooms altogether because most of what they grow there is just the agaricus species, the button, cremini. And so all throughout that time of hunting, being in the outdoors, I always kind of knew that, like, I felt very claustrophobic where I was. I wanted more access to outdoors. But I continued on a path and got a degree in civil engineering um, and kind of just went back to business as usual after I graduated, with the exception of coming out to Montana and visiting out there regularly and just kind of falling in love with it as a place with the open spaces, the access to recreation and so meanwhile, still living back in PA, I was, you know, putting together some gardens in the backyard and starting to get into permaculture. And, you know, the permaculture system of, you know, stacking functions, creating, you know, abundance off of waste products and things like that started really getting me into mushrooms. And then I met my now wife who convinced me to move to Montana and kind of pursue a dream of getting into agriculture. And we moved to Billings first, which is a town in eastern Montana that's kind of more high plains, and started growing mushrooms out of the garage there as I was getting deeper and deeper into permaculture. And, you know, didn't foresee it being something that could be a living. And, you know, there was still that kind of part of me gnawing that wanted me to get into ag in some way. And so we finally moved to northwestern Montana here in Kalispell and started our farm in 2018, which is Sunhands Farm where we grow a variety of gourmet mushrooms and also diversified vegetables. And I have to say, I mean, we couldn't be happier here. We, you know, live in an area that has an abundance of wild forage mushrooms, which has really helped just like kind of make the dive into mycology just that much, you know, rapid, more rapid and accelerated. And, you know, the acceptance here for mushrooms in general, just from farmers markets, from local, you know, customers, just person-to-person sales has just been outstanding. So what specifically pulled you in the direction of mushrooms? What what made you decide that was like kind of your keystone uh, species to work with? I mean, getting into agriculture from having, you know, a traditional lifestyle of having a nine-to-five job, you know, we needed something that could help us break in and not be able to, like, work the traditional farmer's life, which is, you know, sun up to sundown. So to be able to grow something small-scale and then just the fascination with fungi in general, uh, I'd always been a home brewer, and I think there's a lot of parallels between home brewing mm. and growing mushrooms. Uh, I mean, you're working with fungi in general. There's a lot of very, you know, stark similarities. And then as I was getting into permaculture and being exposed to people like Paul Stamets and Peter McCoy and Trad Cotter and their perspective on how, you know, these systems could be integrated into permaculture and organic farming, I mean, I was just blown away that this wasn't a bigger subject that people were following more. Yeah, I would agree. There's a uh, – there's a – a little documentary that's on Curiosity Stream. I don't know if it's available anywhere else, but it's called The Kingdom. And it, it's all about the fungi and how fungi co-evolved with all life on the planet. And it is it is fascinating. I think that we primarily haven't even begun to scratch the surface on what fungi can do for humanity. Um, can you, with that in mind, can you talk a little bit about why they're you know why mushrooms are important? 
Yeah, I mean, like you said, it basically is the last frontier of science in terms of, you know, plant studies where we know so little compared to what there is ahead of us to, to really understand in the future. And even just in particular in the gourmet mushroom business in the last four years, things have just exploded. I mean, it's become a very popular trend to try to start a mushroom farm and get into mushroom growing and you know people see it for the dollar signs of the price per pound but it's i think what draws a lot of people to it is the you know the kind of pioneer aspect where it's you know it's one of those last forefronts where people don't know enough and you can become an expert very quickly and citizen science is kind of rooted in that in in the study of, of fungi um you don't need to be you know a degreed mycologist and there's actually not even many avenues to do that um but mushrooms in general i mean they have so many benefits and we can go i know you've had peter mccoy on before and he went into a lot of like the kind of like a remediation and like the soil Mm -hmm. uh science and all that and today i'd like to focus more on just the growing you know the nutritional and what's good for people to just be eating mushrooms in general um you know, people should be eating more mu- mushrooms in their diet. And I think that's one of the problems is that the, the market for mushrooms hasn't kept up recently with the supply of growers. Mm. And, you know, gourmet mushrooms are, are an amazing whole food nutrition that's high in protein, trace minerals like selenium, zinc, um, vitamin B and vitamin D. Uh, mushrooms are the only non-animal source of vitamin D. And there's been studies of, you know, plant tissue that can, has said that mushrooms grown in proper conditions can have up to 46,000 IUs per 100 gram serving of vitamin D. So in times like these where everyone is starting to realize the benefits of vitamin D in our, in our health, that, that's just an amazing food source to, to have availability to. And, you know, the analog food source is always the better source compared to the nutraceutical, um, a lot of people would say. Also a great source of uh, fiber, uh, beta-glucans, uh, which are polysaccharides that have a lot of the immune-boosting and immune-modulating uh, properties that mushrooms get and anti-cancer, things like that. And there's a lot of medicinal benefits to edible mushrooms in particular, and then you have a whole spectrum of gourmet, you know, non-gourmet medicinal mushrooms that just have okay. amazing benefits in terms of immune-boosting properties, uh, you know, there's been studies done on the antiviral, antimicrobial properties of a lot of mushrooms. You know, Paul Stamets has been in, involved in a lot of that work where they've, you know, studied mushrooms as antiviral properties against hepatitis B, herpes simplex 1 and 2, HIV, influenza, smallpox, anthrax, tobacco mosaic virus, RSV. I mean, the, the list is endless as to what mushrooms are known to do, but we're also still kind of on that cusp of really realizing the full potential of what they can do. Yeah, I mean, there's people building beehives out of it, and it stops colony collapse. I mean, that's that alone should make people just sit back and go, whoa, like, whoa, like what? Like, how how is that even a thing? But yet it is. We we actually can build things from fungi that that work better than any other material. Uh, that's just yeah. being one particular example. It's pretty amazing. And um, I think maybe a lot of people think they don't like mushrooms, but maybe that to me that's a lot like saying, well, I don't like food. What mushroom prepared what way? 
My yet. wife was always like this. You know, I don't like mushrooms. Have you ever eaten mushrooms? Well, and her entire experience with mushrooms were button mushrooms on top of a pizza, which mm -hmm. are inevitably undercooked, right? First of all, they they, they 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 just never seem to cook unless you go to like to like a a brick fired oven, like thousand degree oven. They're always undercooked. They always have that funky taste, and so. I finally got her a few years ago to try. I did just shiitakes with shallots and garlic and butter. She's like, these are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Like, actually cooking something properly or using something properly. And I think that maybe more people just need to take a little bit more adventure with, you know, type, quality, and method when it comes to that if they don't think they, you know, really like mushrooms. And I, I don't want to tell anybody, yes, you do, when they say, no, I don't. But I think a lot of people that say, no, I don't, will they haven't had enough experience with trying things to know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that kind of goes back to my original statement of, you know, growing up near Kennett Square and not liking mushrooms because that was my only experience with mm. button mushrooms because I feel like those mushrooms, not to diminish people from eating mushrooms, but they do not hold a candle to the gourmet species that especially mushroom growers provide. And I have this conversation with people all the time at farmer's market where I say, all right, Hit, try oyster mushrooms. Oyster mushrooms are one of the mildest mm -hmm. where they don't have that rubbery texture that buttons can have. And I like to call it the gateway mushroom where you'll get a little bit of that strong mushroom flavor. If you, you know, the more you kind of brown it in some butter, the more intense kind of umami flavor it gets. And then it kind of opens you up to like, hmm, this isn't, this isn't bad. What's, what's like kind of the next step above? And shiitake for me is one of the kind of like the peak umami flavors, one of the more intense ones. Mm -hmm. So if you can handle shiitake, you will probably enjoy most other, you know, specialty gourmet species. The one I missed the most growing up in PA myself was, is the, uh, we call them ram's heads, but mataki. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, it, it, it boggles my mind what people pay for those today. Because as a kid, like I knew places that you could go fill up half of a back of a pickup truck with them in about 30 minutes time, you know, right out of the wild. And if you went back to the same place and you harvested properly, they would be there again. You know, they would just be there again over and over and over again. And some of them would be, you know, 10, 15 pounds for one mushroom. And, and even back then, you could walk in any of the little corner bars or whatever and throw them up on a bar. People were paying 10 bucks a pound for them. It's it's, oh, it's yeah. amazing to me, you know. <laughs> and then people turn around and like turn their nose up. And like you don't, you keep using the term gourmet. I mean, that's the truth. You're talking about a premium product, um, especially like you said, shiitake to me is one of like nature's miracles of flavor. It's they're pretty amazing. Yeah, it's basically the reason they created the this you know the flavor term of umami was for shiitake mushrooms is it has that intensity of like beefy fat, um, but also kind of sweet in a way, and just is not described by any other mushroom. And you know out here we we don't get many chicken you know the hens which is what you call the ram's head yeah. end of the woods. Um, we get a bunch of uh, we have a pretty big diversity, but you know that's ironically the. One of the other common themes of farmer's market is I'll have this spread of beautiful gourmet mushrooms that, you know, would never look that good in the in the wild. And people are coming up and saying, do you have any morels? Do you have any chanterelles? Yeah. Do you have any porcini? And those, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love those mushrooms. But, I mean, what we're able to now grow, and actually Chicken of the Woods is now becoming a more popular 
um, cultivated mushroom now that the science is kind of caught up and more people are sharing information across different growers. Now, when you say chicken of the, of the woods, you're not talking about head of the woods. You're talking about sorry, head of the woods. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about head of the woods. There's one head called of the chicken yeah, of the sorry. woods. And that's a yeah. fantastic mushroom, too, but people walked right past it, even mushroom hunters when I was growing up. That was the, the orange ones. They usually grow on softwoods, and they're fantastic, too. Yep. So what makes mushrooms relevant for, like, home food production? Like, you know, for people that are out there that maybe they don't have access to someone like you, and they're thinking, like, can I do this for myself, that type of thing. Yeah, what I think makes mushrooms exciting for home growing and, you know, the homestead kind of grower where you're trying to provide for yourself is that basically given the right conditions, you can grow year-round um, with the right temperatures and humidity as long as you're okay with, you know, setting aside a certain area of your home to some level of mushroom production because basically the, the honed-in zone of mushroom production is right around room temperature. It's between, you know, 60 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit, and the one thing that you need to really get going is the humidity. And so if you live in an area where you have an average humidity level of about 90%, you don't need to do a whole lot else. But you can supplement that humidity with a little bit of, you know, just a humidifier, like an in-home humidifier. You can set up an area in a closet, um, in a basement, in a in a shed, something like that, and have year-round production that can be pretty reliable once you get the hang of it. I mean, the, the trick with growing mushrooms that I always tell people is be prepared to fail early and often. Yeah. And you learn a lot from each of those those failures, and it's kind of what, you know, separates the wheat from the chaff in terms of growing mushrooms is this is not like growing vegetables where you can just throw seeds out there and the more seed you throw out them, you know, the higher the chance you that you'll get something, yeah. you know, marketable. But um, one of the other things great about home production is you can do this on the cheap. I mean, a lot of the times, a lot of these oysters in particular are grown on waste materials, agricultural waste products like straw, um, spent coffee grains, sawdust, wood chips, things like that. And, you know, as a home grower, you can maintain your own stock like you would if you were a brewer of mycelium to kind of perpetuate your growing and not, you know, once you buy a culture from a professional grower or a supplier, like you can maintain that in a way that perpetuates the same way that you save yeast and just keep going to keep your costs down and not have to keep buying in spawn, which is usually the highest cost for production. And, you know, your production can be kind of tailored to your times of need. You know, if you have a bunch of stuff that you've made and, like, you can kind of put it in cold storage and delay some of the fruiting and, you know, it's not going to fruit unless it has the right conditions. So if mm. you can control the conditions, you can almost have basically a storage bank of food um, for times when you need it versus times when you have abundance already. Um, you know, it's great for kind of trade and barter as well because if you are growing mushrooms not many other people in your area likely are and so they might have an abundance of you know vegetable products or beef and eggs or some other meat source but they don't have uh you know gourmet mushrooms and they probably are getting tired of the same five meals every once in a while and so they're always willing to trade for something new and exciting and you know when it's dried properly, which can be as easy as just in the sun on a rack, you know, even just like an old screen from a window, they basically become, you know, 
indeterminately shelf stable where they will last for years and years and years. And it's, it doesn't change the properties that drastically to take, you know, some dried oysters, some dried shiitakes, whatever, throw it into, you know, a soup based dish or something like that. And they just rehydrate and you wouldn't, I mean, they're not going to be as great as the day that you pick them, but they still add such an abundance of flavor and texture to a dish. And then also, I mean, for a home grower, the waste product of growing mushrooms, which is your spent substrate, becomes an invaluable resource of creating healthy soil for your garden. You know, particularly when you do it through a vermicompost system, I have not seen any other compost that can compete with spent mushroom substrate vermicomposted just for, you know, a few months. Yeah, well, I would agree with that. I mean, you're talking double turbocharging something that – works well from either source alone, right? And then you you put those two things together. And I think it is the biological life. It's less about the nutrient profile and more about the, the, the life web that that creates is, is fantastic. Um, how does somebody get started in this? Like kind of what's the, the entry ramp, the easiest entry ramp for people? The easiest thing to start with, um, I would say, is pretty much always oysters, Um You know, there's easy things to get started with in terms of log cultivation with shiitake and some other species, but they take such a long time that I almost see it as more of a discouragement to people that don't have the patience or, Hmm. you know, aren't willing to accept the failure of like nine months to a year's worth of work just kind of gone. So I always try to encourage people to start with oysters. Um, They are the most forgiving species. They're the most kind of reliably rapid growing and the cycle on oysters is usually four weeks if you're growing on something other than logs so if you're growing on straw uh, wood chips any other cellulosic material so that's one of the things that a lot of the you know these permaculture books that mention mushroom farming go into is that they will grow on any linean based cellulosic material so whether that's you know denim uh, cardboard, whatever, you can find waste streams to grow oyster mushrooms. I mean, you're not going to get the greatest yields out of those really low-tech methods, but oysters um, are are pretty much foolproof as long as you give them all the things that they want. So I always suggest that those are the, the easiest ways to kind of get into it. And then once you graduate from oysters, I tend to recommend then trying out things like wine cap in a wood chip or straw bed and then shiitake on logs or lion's mane on logs. Those are both things that can produce reliably and will give you enough confidence to kind of move forward into other things. But oysters for sure, and there's, you know, there's over at least 10 species of oysters that you can try. Blue oyster is probably the most cultivated. So if you're looking for spawn, that's always the most readily available. And so I would recommend kind of starting there. And it's for us, it's probably the most reliable fruiter as well in terms of we want a specific yield every crop. So that's what we go for. Gotcha. Um, Can you talk a little bit about reusing or cultivating your own spawn? Because to me, that is kind of the weak link if you don't do that. Because I look at, okay, this is what, you know, a five-pound block of, of uh, spawn and sawdust or this particular mushroom costs. And if I just grow that and that's all I do, I'm not going to get that big of an ROI on it. But if I can keep reusing that, then my ROI, like in my second generation, is, is pretty much unlimited if I'm using a waste stream that doesn't cost me anything. Sure. 
Yeah, so when you're trying to maintain spawn in a culture, it's always best to kind of buy in the first time from a professional grower. Um, you know, if you have somebody in your area, that's a good way to kind of get in with them. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if you want to kind of ask them questions about cultivation and you're buying spawn from them, they're probably more likely to, you know, give you some information. But if you can't, you know, find someone close to you that has it, there's, you know, probably a dozen reliable organic spawn producers uh, on the web, you know, including Fungi Perfecti, Field and Forest, Aloha Medicinals, which has, you know, smaller spawn bags that are probably better for first-time growers. And then once you get that spawn, you know, whether it's sawdust, you can buy plug spawn and you can buy uh, grain spawn. So grain spawn is meant for inoculating like a supplemented sawdust mixture or straw for oyster production. Sawdust is meant for outdoor growing. Um, Like if you're going to do an oyster bed on wood chips or a wine cap bed on wood chips or straw, And then the plug spawn is meant if you're doing log inoculation. However, with the plug spawn, you can use those colonized plug spawn to then further some mycelium. Like you have mycelium on each of those dowels, and they stay pretty stable within refrigeration for up to six months. So if you buy 100 plug spawn, you only do two logs, and you have like 30 left over, you can try to create then sawdust spawn or green spawn, or cardboard spawn, cardboard spawn if you want to try something different for outdoor growing, by taking one or two of those dowels and introducing them to a sterilized substrate of grain or, sub, or sawdust. And so you can use those which are a lot kind of more sterile and less likely to contaminate to kind of proliferate your spawn production. And you can also do the same with each of the other methods. So if you have sawdust spawn, and you use, you know, 90% of the bag, you can take the last 10%, sterilize some sawdust, and then proliferate that, you know, 10 times over. Mm-hmm. And then you can do the same thing with grain spawn. So grain spawn, and I'll talk briefly about contamination. So the higher that the nutritive value gets in the material that you're using, the more likelihood of contamination. So there's a bunch of different vectors of contamination, uh, In this, we're particularly talking about the substrate, so being the spawn, like grain will contaminate way faster than sawdust will. Okay. Sawdust will contaminate a little bit faster than wood dowels would, because wood dowels are closer to like a a natural log Mm -hmm. source. Um, Surface area exposed alone, I think, would, yeah. Yeah, and then with the grains, you're talking about, if we think to like composting, we're talking about something that's high in N, compared to high in C. Like, things that are high in carbon are less likely to contaminate, grow molds, grow fungi, bacteria, than things that are high in nitrogen. Mm. So the higher your substrate source is, which, you know, all commercial growers grow on what's called supplemented sawdust, which is a mixture of a sawdust and a supplement, which is usually wheat bran um, or soy hulls, cottonseed hulls, Alfalfa pellets, something like that. Would rice, would rice bran work for that? Because that's yep. like in tons of feed stores, they have rice bran. Absolutely, yeah. Feed. We started out using rice bran. Okay. And so that's a great source. But if you're trying to just think about spawn production, green is the most likely to contaminate. Okay. So I would not try that first. I would try, you know, creating sawdust spawn off of wood dowel source or, you know, propagating your wood dowels by, like, taking one to three wood dowels into some sterilized or uh, pasteurized 
uh, wood dowels and just kind of growing that spawn out. Okay. And that's the way that you maintain it, the, the way that you do similar to as like a home brewer where you're just taking a small bit of yeast and growing it out on a sub, you know, basically you're using malt extract when you're, sure. when you're a home brewer. Yeah. You feed it and it, it starts to, to reproduce and expand. And yeah, I mean, every, I think every home brewer does that sooner or later. And I think it's less in home brewing. It's, it's unless you're doing some really specialized, expensive liquid yeast, it's less about expense and more about <laughs> this would be cool. Right? Like, can I well, do you like, yeah, if you yeah. get a genetic that you like and you want to proliferate it, like say you make a beer that you just love the flavor, it's the same with mushrooms. If you get mushrooms and you see a mushroom where you're just like, wow, that spawn created this amazing cluster with these great colors, these huge caps, like you want to see those genetics the same yeah. way. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, like, I think what really started it with the home brewers was back when, when it was a newer thing in America, um, there was about 10 different little yeast packages of dry yeast you could buy, and that was it. And, like, yeah. the gateway into home brewing was, like, freaking Chimay. Like, mm -hmm. so so you'd go out and you'd have a Chimay somewhere, and you're like, i got to get some more of this. And you're like, $9 a bottle? And that was back then, right? And you're like, that's, that's real money. And so then you're like, you go to the home brew store, hey, I want to make Chimay. And they're like, oh, okay, good luck. Because there were no Y-Yeast lab stuff and things like that. And so people snapped real quick to, hey, just leave the bottom of the bottle. Throw a little moth extract in there, throw a little airlock on it, and cultivate it right out of the bottle, and you get that monk yeast in your bottle. And it's the same kind of thing. Like, now you have this kind of unique, I guess mushrooms can get to a point where you almost have like a terroir, like where you have a unique strain of, you know, pink oyster or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, they, they basically uh, reproduce the same way where, you know, if you take, so the, the spore of the mushroom is the seed. So if you allow spores to germinate, you're going to get a variation in genetics where not every mushroom culture that comes out of that is going to be the same genetics as the parent uh, mushroom. So to get that exact genetics, you need to clone the material. And so if you're using the same spawn source, that is essentially cloning. Or if you're taking a sample, a tissue sample from the mushroom and then growing that out on agar or in liquid culture in some way, you are cloning that mushroom where you're ensuring that that genetics is passed on in that strain of mushroom. What, what would be like the lowest tech way with a reasonable chance of success for people to just keep this going, like without becoming a scientist and using, you know, gels and microscopes and stuff like that, like pick a mushroom that would be best to do it with and a waste stream that's readily available and how, how like what is the lowest tech way that you could probably get away with yeah so i i will share as uh you know i read every book that was available on home cultivation whenever it became available and then i was always frustrated by you know the they calling it low tech and it being somewhat higher tech than the standard home grower was willing to dive into. So I tried every method that I could think of to kind of really bootstrap, just trying to be able to successfully grow mushrooms. And what I had the most success with was oyster mushrooms. Okay. And so blue oyster or gray dove are kind of the, like I said, the most standard that there's always spawn available from those species. And so I would start with that on straw. And that on straw will get you a pretty high success rate with a, like a four-week turnaround from spawning to actually picking mushrooms. And that's a cycle that for people, even with failure rate of like 30 to 
you can kind of live with that if you're still getting mushrooms every four weeks. So the the lowest tech ways for doing oysters on straw would be to either pasteurize in a hot water bath above 170 degrees to 180 degrees max. Don't go above 190 degrees. Things start getting a little uh, microbial at that time. And so you're going to do a hot water bath. And what I did in my backyard at first was I would take large coolers and I would chop up straw. So one of the important first steps is to chop up the straw. It increases the biological efficiency. Okay, so let me let me pause you there because usually when I see people talking about this, talking about growing on a bale, you're actually breaking down the bale. Because yeah, you don't I don't know how you're going to get a, a, a full size straw bale to 170 degrees. That so okay, now that makes sense. All right, cool. So you're going to take, you know, you take like a, you know, a cake at a time. And what I used to use was basically like a leaf shredder okay. um, from Home Depot or Lowe's and just, you know, pass it down the leaf shredder. Um, I also have done before where I've used a weed whacker within a barrel mm. um, to just try to chop it up. If you have a bale chopper or a wood chipper, that's ideal. You know, it works uh, really, does. really good. You just peel it off the, off the, off the bale a, a layer at a time is a, a hedge trimmer. Yep. And yeah, I just learned that watching a documentary on um, straw bale houses. Like when they need mm-hmm. to shape one or something, that's what they use. I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. That's, yeah. That would work. A lot of people have those, right? So. Yeah, and the reason that you're chopping that down is it increases what's called the biological efficiency, which is the mm-hmm. amount that you're yielding off of the dry mass that you're starting with of substrate. Okay. So chopping the straw, you're going to go from like somewhere around 80% biological efficiency to somewhere around 100 to 120% biological efficiency. Wow. And you're decre- yeah, you're decreasing the air gaps within the packed substrate so that the mycelium is not having to work harder and spending the energy that it would on mushroom production in terms of filling all those voids within the material. Okay. So once you chop everything up, then you're going to put it into some kind of container. I used to use those kind of like mesh laundry bags to keep everything contained uh-huh. and then put it into – a either a large cooler or even a bin, just something, or if you have a barrel that you can maintain a heat source on, mm. that's good as well. But basically you need to you need to maintain above 170 degrees up to about 180 degrees for about two hours to achieve pasteurization on okay. straw. If you could figure out how to do it so the straw doesn't escape and get in it, the yeah. easiest way I could see to do that is a sous vide circulator. Mm-hmm. Because you could dial it 170 degrees, hit go, and once it's the temp, then you dump your straw, it'll drop down, it's going to come back up, and it will stay within a degree. And mm-hmm. as long as, like, I've seen people do home brewing with it, you just got to put some sort of, the water's got to be able to get through, but, you know, you don't want clumps of straw getting up in a, a circulator. It'll jam it up and probably burn it out, but, yeah, yeah, you're you're convincing me to do this now as I start piecing together ways I can do it easily. <laughs> So before I go on to the next step, after pasteurization is done, I'll mention another method with uh, straw, which is cold lime pasteurization. Okay. So you're not involving any heat source. You're using hydrated lime, which you need to use calcium hydroxide, not dolomitic lime or any other lime that's high in magnesium because that stunts mycelium growth. Okay. So when you're looking for it, don't use something that's like mentioned as garden lime or has a magnesium percentage above 1%. Okay. And so what you're going to do is you're going to use about a quarter cup of hydrated lime per 10 gallons of water 
okay. that you're soaking your substrate in. And you would do the same thing. Like what I used to do is take large Rubbermaid bins with these mesh bags full of chopped straw. Mm-hmm. I would mix my water and hydrated lime first. I would dunk the lime bag or the straw bag in and then put weight over top of it so that it stayed submerged. And you're going to soak that for about 16 hours and no longer than about 20 hours. Okay. And what this process is doing is raising the pH high enough that the mycelium has a window of about three days where it can out-compete the competitor molds and bacteria that are in the substrate. So when you're pasteurizing, you're not killing off every living organism that's in there. You're counting on the fact that oyster mycelium is so aggressive that it can out-compete the competitors in there as long as it's given a fighting chance of pasteurization through heat or lime pasteurization through raising the pH. Gotcha. And so then what becomes critical to the lime pasteurization is you need to give the right kind of growth parameters for incubation. So we'll go into like what happens after you're done pasteurizing in whatever way you do. You're going to then take the straw out and you're going to let it drain until it's basically like a saturated surface dry condition where you can squeeze it and like a drop will come out, but not much more than that. And so you can do that on a tarp, like on a hill or, you know, on a table that has like some, some openings to it. You know, however you choose to do that, you want to air dry a little bit and then you're going to start packing that into some kind of container. And so I've used buckets, which a lot of people promote as like a low tech way where you just, you know, fill a five gallon bucket full of your pasteurized straw, mixing in about 10% weight to wet substrate of spawn. So as you pack layers of your straw into your container, you're putting, you're sprinkling in some spawn. And, uh, grain spawn, I've always found is, is much better. It has faster colonization rates for straw. So that's what I would recommend to use for this. I've also had a lot of success using Rubbermaid bins. Um, that will produce a lot longer than buckets will, and you'll get a bigger yield off of. Because the general concept is the the larger the starting mass of substrate, the higher the yield of actual fresh-weighted mushrooms you're going to get, and over a longer period. But one of the other methods that you can do at home that has also had been used, you know, going back like six years ago in commercial production is using polyethylene lay-flat tubing which is used in the packing industry and also for uh, HVAC in some instances. So you buy it in rolls, and you can buy, I recommend, somewhere between 8 to 10-inch diameter uh, tubing. And it's just clear polyethylene that you tie off one end at the bottom, and you start stacking in layers, like you're just using your hands, or if you have you know, something to hold the, the tubing onto, you're just going to start dumping in layers of straw. And then every couple inches, you're throwing in some spawn, too, and just trying to pack it as dense as you can, because like we said before, we don't want those air spaces in to overexert the mycelium. And so once you have it in whatever container you're intending on fruiting on, you know, in and colonizing in, you're going to then have to put in some air holes there for gas exchange. And so if you're doing the tubing, you can use like a, a broadhead of an arrow to poke holes on like a six by six grid that will allow for gas exchange of CO2 and fresh air to come in. And, you know, you use a drill if you're using uh, Rubbermaid containers or buckets or whatever else you're growing in. 
Um, I mean, when I, the first batch I ever did, I, I actually stole some, like, of the produce bags from a grocery store and just packed them in there and tied it off at the top and then just cut a couple X's in there for air exchange. So the, the potential of different vessels you can use for, for growing in is pretty endless. But then once you get to the point where everything's packed, you've got it set, then you need to put it into an incubation area that's somewhere between 60 to 70 degrees. And this is more important than fruiting conditions, that you want that rapid mycelium growth in the first couple days where you're trying to outcompete the molds, fungi, and bacteria that are in there that are going to basically contaminate and you know ruin all that hard work that you did. So if you have a space that's semi-heated, that's where, like, you know, even if you have a significant other that isn't in love with the idea of you growing fungi within your home, if you can get that head start of, like, a week, I would use your indoor space to kind of get that head start for the mycelium to ensure your success and make sure that you don't have issues with contamination. So that incubation period is going to take, you know, somewhere between three to four weeks, usually three weeks, and then by the time you see a solid white mass of mycelium across the entire uh, substrate, which is harder to know if you're doing it in buckets or, you know, a non-transparent um, container, then you have to kind of lift the lid every once in a while and take a peek. But once you see that thick white mass of mycelium over everything, then you know it's ready to put into a fruiting area, which can be as easy as, like, when I started out, I had a closet in a spare bedroom that I put just a, a humidifier in, that I kept the door open so it had gas exchange, but it kept the humidity above about 80%, which is the minimum that you need mm. for pins to form and fruiting to be initiated. And then once you get to pins forming, which are like very small, uh, they call them pins because it looks like the head of a pin, uh, these clusters, then you need to kind of maintain that humidity. Like it can survive getting down to 70% and it'll just change kind of the texture of the mushroom. But getting the pin set is the, the most crucial part of fruiting successfully. And that's where you need ideally over 90%, but realistically above 80% humidity and some fresh air exchange within the room to make sure CO2 doesn't build up. And from there you're, you're growing mushrooms successfully. And so with reusing spawn or what have you, you pretty much need to keep some of that initial stuff you buy back. I mean, because it would seem like, isn't there a whole crap load of, of mycelium in this uh, this media now? And it could kind of like repitching type thing, I guess, but it's really high risk of contamination, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly the point is you can reuse. I would say that I would say it's possible to reuse the straw mycelium to then put out into like an outdoor bed of straw okay. or wood chips. I wouldn't recommend reusing it for straw cultivation in containers because you have such a high risk of contamination. And so, like I said, just, you know, if you have a bag of spawn, try to save like a handful to then propagate for more uh, grain spawn or, you know, you can use sawdust spawn for, Straw cultivation, it just doesn't have the same leap-off rate gotcha. that grain spawn does. So you would just source your own grain and make more? Yeah. And you would pasteurize that grain, and then you would pitch into it and go from there? So the grain you would want to sterilize because of the high risk of contamination. Yep. 
And so what you can do is most people that are preppers, homesteaders, you know, home growers probably have a Presto or some other kind of canner um, that can hold pressure and get to basically a sterilization temperature. Mm. So you can hydrate some grain to 60% um, relative moisture and then sterilize that for about two hours at 10 PSI. And if you, so we, we do all of our grain inoculation and spawn production in front of a flow hood. So obviously we'll have results that you couldn't replicate as a home grower. But if you just got a home HEPA filter uh, unit and put it in front of you as you're doing it, you'd have a success rate that was probably about 75% of making your own grain spawn. As long as you're sterilizing it properly. Yeah, okay. Cool. So if somebody does grow mushrooms, gets a hold of a bunch of mushrooms, what is the best thing that they should do once they have them? Like to, Because obviously you eat them fresh, but if you produce a lot, I mean, you start going into dehydration, other methods of preservation or what have you. Yeah, so the best, most shelf-stable way to preserve them is just by drying them. And, I mean, to be honest, we don't use high-tech dehydrators or anything like that. We have a bunch of old screens that we put out. I mean, our our summer environment is, you know, usually single digit humidity and just blasting sunlight. So we yeah. have the the pleasure of being able to just throw a bunch of mushrooms out on some screens and just 24 hours later they're completely dehydrated to like less than 5% moisture content. So that's I mean the easiest way to preserve them for a long period of time. Um, most mushrooms do not freeze well fresh. So the only other thing you can really do with them is you can preserve them by cooking them in fat, whether it's butter or whatever fat you, you typically use for your food preparation. So cooking them in a generous amount of fat, and we do this with a lot of, um, you know, the wild mushrooms that we forage where we'll make chanterelle butter, where we'll mm. chop up fine chanterelles into a ton of butter and then just dump that once it's cooked into a Tupperware container and throw it into the freezer and that fat preserves it from getting freezer burnt and keeps it better to the point where you can just take a scoop of butter that's got a ton of mushrooms in it thrown in a pan and you just added a ton of flavor to whatever dish that you're cooking. Very cool. Move over truffle butter. (laughs) Yeah. All right, man. So, um, uh, if people want to take kind of, you talked about kind of the low tech entry level gateway. What do people do if they want to kind of take it to the next level? Yeah, so the next level is to kind of think of the way that a commercial grower grows. And the difference between what a commercial grower can do and what a home grower can do is basically a cost of infrastructure and just scale. Um, so if you're trying to grow like five pounds of mushrooms a week for you and your family, you can do that at home in methods that translate to what commercial growers do. So just think like a commercial grower. A commercial grower grows pretty much all of their species on what's called supplemented sawdust, which is a combination of hardwood sawdust and a supplement, like we said, any type of cereal bran, um, any type of seed hull for the most part. And what we have, you know, we started out growing on wheat bran and rice bran, had great success with that. But then we were seeing all these other people that were kind of setting the world on fire with yields. And we finally made a decision to switch over to what's called master's mix, which is a 50-50 blend of soy hulls and hardwood sawdust. 
And that mixture will give you a biological efficiency, like we referred to before, of basically a yield of mushroom versus the dry weight of material you put in of almost 100% on the first yield. It's kind of crazy. That is kind of crazy. Yeah, it's worlds above, you know, most other recipes that we've tried and messed around with. And so as we just talked a couple minutes ago about, you know, creating spawn using sterilization in a pressure cooker, you can do the same thing with supplemented sawdust blocks. The one thing you need to do to take it to the next level is to get, you know, the bag, you know, what we use in commercial mushroom production is filter patch bags, which are an autoclave safe bag that has a filter patch on it that allows for gas exchange once colonization begins. And so those bags aren't cheap, but they're not horrifically expensive. You can get them from anywhere from like 37 to 50 cents a bag. And if you're growing two pounds of mushrooms or somewhere close to that off of each bag, that, you know, justifies that cost. Yeah. So what you can do is, is make blocks the way that we do as commercial growers, just on a much smaller scale. And you can take your 50, 50 mixture of sawdust and supplement, you know, whether it is soy hulls, if you can find them, or if you can, if you need to use wheat bran or alfalfa pellets, rice bran, um, anything else, there's a good resource in Paul Stamitz's The Mushroom Cultivator. He has an appendix that lists all the possible mushroom supplements for supplemented sawdust production if you can't find something in your area. But so what you're going to do is you're going to take your sawdust and, you know, if you don't have access to fresh sawdust, what you can do is get um, hardwood fuel pellets if you have access to them in your area like you would use in a, a pellet stove. Okay. And so one of the more exciting things that we've been working on lately is we have been doing a lot of trial batches with pine and fir pellets as well. And we've always been told that you cannot grow mushrooms even oysters on those species, but after gaining some information from other growers, we are successfully growing oysters and lion's mane on uh, red fur pellets. So if you can't find hardwood fuel pellets, you can try uh, fur, dug fur, even pine seems to work in some instances. So you're going to create – so I would recommend if you have like a Presto or a medium-sized canner pressure cooker, you can usually fit three to four five-pound bags in one of those to sterilize. Okay. So five pounds is a good number, and that's also one of the, you know, it's kind of the weight that some of these filter patch bags are set out to fit comfortably. So for a five-pound bag, you want 60% moisture content, meaning that, you know, roughly 2.25 pounds to depending on what your substrate is already at and the moisture content, usually it's about 5%. So realistically you're doing a 55% moisture and the rest of that weight is going to be your, your substrate. So you're going to do somewhere around 2.25 pounds of dry material. And then you're going to split that 50, 50 in weight between soy hulls or whatever brand you're using. And then sawdust whether it's fuel pellets or dry sawdust. The only thing with dry sawdust and fresh sawdust is you need to measure the moisture content to make sure that you're not overdoing it in terms of the moisture that you add. And so you would then hydrate that with hot water just because it will hydrate a lot faster. And so, you know, at 2.25 pounds, 2.75 pounds of water would be the amount of moisture that you're adding to your substrate. And so you're going to hydrate that, let it kind of fully hydrate the material, and then you're going to fold over the bags put it into your pressure cooker 
and same thing about two to two and a half hours at 10 PSI. And you're going to have pretty much, you know, you can never say that something's fully sterilized, but you're going to have like a 98% full. All right, so you put two two hours at 10 PSI of steam. You're not much is coming out of there alive. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) so the only difference then moving on is then you're going to inoculate with some grain spawn. And the difference between you and a commercial grower, again, is going to be the commercial growers are most often doing that in a flow hood in a lab environment to minimize risk of contamination. You know, if you want to minimize your risk, you can get, like I said, a little like home air filter HEPA unit that you can work in front of that's just blowing fresh air in front of you and, you know, decreasing the spore load that you can come in contact with. But to be honest, um, there's been times where we've had our lab down and we've inoculated sawdust blocks without HEPA filtration and we still only see a contamination rate of about 10%. Okay. And flow hoods are expensive. I looked it up while you were talking about them. So yes, yeah. Right. Unless you're unless you're making money off it, you probably that's don't yeah. Know. That's when you're getting serious and you're thinking about doing this. You know, at least on a part time basis. So I've tried like the really super low tech, which is inoculating garden beds and stuff like that with Kingstrophoria. And yeah. I've made about three mushrooms out of about fifty pounds of attempt. Um, and I think it's just my climate is not ideal for that. I mean, everybody seems to say, like, the easiest thing you can do is King Straforia. Just stick it in your wood chips, and it'll grow. And, it, like, um, I mean, I've even tried that with wicking beds where, you know, it never dries out. And I've tried, like, taking a kiddie pool that was kind of worn out from the duck usage and putting wood chips in it and soaking them until they were fully hydrated and then inoculate. And I get mycelium to grow. They just, I don't ever get fruiting and I've tried different times of year. And I just wonder if maybe in my climate, that's just not going to work for me. It seems like if I had done that when I had gardens in Pennsylvania, I probably had Kingstrophoria popping out of my ears, you know? Yeah. I mean, relative humidity is the biggest challenge in dry climates. And the only way that we've successfully grown wine cap is, you know, we grow diversified vegetables as well. So we have row crops and I've grown it basically in the walkways of our beds with wood chips in, you know, starting in the early spring in like April, laying down layers of wood chips mixed with King Strafaria spawn and then putting basically it in the walkway where it's going to have row cover sitting on top of it and irrigation. Mm-hmm. That's creating like a microclimate where there's no chance that it's going to it's going to dry out. And if you if you did it in a hoop house, you know that might in- increase your chances. But I've I've had many failed attempts with wine cap as well. That makes and me feel better. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not an easy one. It's one where you're 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 rolling the dice. It's you don't know you're a hundred percent guaranteed getting mushrooms out of this attempt. That's why I always say like, and I don't know if you were doing it on soil with wine cap. There seems to be a relationship where it wants to interact with both you know, some kind of I've microbial aspect yeah. and like that biological kind of stimulates growth almost yeah. where we've had done, like, like I said, I've done both. I put it right. I put it under wood chips on soil. I put it in wood chips on soil. I've done swimming pools full of nothing but wood chips in it. I've tried it all. And I've, I was wondering if maybe, maybe a species of oyster might be a better mushroom to try that with, but maybe not. I don't know. 
No, oysters do well in those in those conditions. The only problem is is that you've really got to give them that right environment from inoculation through fruiting, and that can take longer, which is a lot more work of you know sitting there and babysitting something for six months. Yeah. To make sure that you're giving it every leg up that it needs to get to the point of fruiting, versus just doing it on straw and bags like that. That's my thing. Is I was I was never one for patience. It's the reason why I started out growing or making wine and then went to beer because it was a four week turnaround versus a six month turnaround. Yeah, and that's way more in my wheelhouse of of patience. Yeah, I mean I do have to say this. It it was fantastic for growing other things like. It, I did get a mycelium net, like that did happen, and it did seem the beds that I inoculated produced better vegetation than the beds that I didn't. And the 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 saw the, the saw or not the sawdust, um, the wood chips I tried to do it with in kiddie pools made the prettiest compost you've ever seen in your life. It just didn't make any mushrooms. Yeah, that's some expensive compost, you know, dropping five pound bricks of spawn into a you know a, a kiddie pool sized thing of wood chips it's it's really not productive from a standpoint of uh, a compost utilization thing if it was a byproduct it'd be great but I might give it another chance with a more uh, controlled environment because that's what I think I'm gonna have to do here I just think it's too hot it's too dry we have the right climate for mushrooms but a very narrow window of it I guess you know Do you guys have really wet springs? We have very wet springs, but they they burn off into blistering summer so quick. You know, you got to come out of your you got to come out of your freezing temperatures first. And you got about sixty days, I think, at the most when you're in that window. At the mo and that's if you get a late onset summer, because a lot of times it's you know in May we have hundred degree days, and that mm -hmm. just closes that window. I get maybe fall would be the better time to try to hit it. Because yeah. if you inoculate in, like, September, a lot of times we don't get any freezing weather until near Christmas. Yeah, that was going to be my next comment was maybe fall is your better time because I've, I've also had beds that I've inoculated in spring and whether because it dried out too much or there was too much wind, like it didn't produce that year, but then the next year it produced. And sometimes it just needs that kind of time to fully, because it has to really fully colonize that substrate and everything around it to reach the point where it signals that, all right, it's time to fruit. Time to fruit and make so more. If you have, yeah. yeah, if you have uncolonized areas because it, like just even this little area dried out and there was some mycelium in there and it's connected to the other mycelium, it might be sending messages that, you know, we're not done yet. There's wait, still food wait guys, yeah, we need to do more yeah. of this before it's time to go. Because my fantasy was, and I was this was fueled by people's advice, was that, If you inoculate enough Kingstrophoria in the gardens and stuff, it can actually perennialize itself. It basically colonizes, and then you have intermittent production, you know, like it's wild. And and that was my my hope. And again, I think it's more of a climate than anything else. And I know people who have done that, um, especially in the northeastern United States, where they stay relatively humid. Um, and you know, it's great. You know, you don't see a lot of mushroom hunters in Texas, and it's not because we don't like them. It's It's just not the place that they, they do really well. There's mushrooms here, but they're usually not the ones that you want to eat or or should eat. We have plenty of destroying angels in the spring, if you care to die. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's that's about it. it it's frustrating for me because, like, like I said, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and there were mushrooms everywhere. I mean, and it, most seasons had a mushroom, other than, like, 
midsummer and midwinter, there was something you could go find. Yeah, and that's what I observe here when I go out hunting. Like this last year in particular was a very poor wild mushroom year where, I mean, I, the year before with the fall we had, I mean, in the summer that was so wet, I probably harvested over 500 pounds of chanterelle from one spot and went back last year and found maybe like a pound. Um, and you know, you go different periods of the year and say, all right, well, this time of the year, this should be popping up. And we had a year last year where we had a bunch of early rains, but then things dried out in a hurry in June and then we had wind and that wind just desiccates everything and dries it out. You know, once that surface area is desiccated and, and doesn't have moisture content, then you're not creating that microclimate above the surface that is telling those pins to initiate and those mushrooms to pop up. So they just stay dormant. There's an intelligence in that kingdom. There really is. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to tell people about your website? I know I don't think you sell anything online per se, but you do uh, offer product in the Kalispell, Montana area. We do sell product online. Oh, okay. Um, we had previously, uh, you know, we've offered plug spawn for the last two years. And we're going to be expanding into offering grain spawn as well and sawdust spawn for King Strafaria for people who do want to try even after the, <laughs> the, the chat that we just had. Okay. Uh, but we do sell plug spawn online. It is made to order. So, um, you know, you do have to just anticipate that it's not in stock all the time. And, uh, we're a small operation. So we try to get stuff out as soon as possible. But we have listed on the website, which is www.sunhandsfarm.com. Uh, under the shop tab, you'll see all the products uh, that we have listed there, which is plug spawn, grain spawn, wood dust, wood sawdust spawn, and each of the individual products will list the species that are available, that are cultures that we keep on the farm at all times. So that went live, I think, yesterday, and we try to do that just in the spring, you know, at the ideal time. Like right now is the ideal time for people that are cutting logs. To kind of be thinking, you know, if you cut logs now and you're before the sap run, you age it for like two weeks and then you'll be ready to inoculate once that weather warms up enough so that you're not getting consistent temperatures below freezing in about a month or so. So we try to have our sawdust and the plug spawn available in the very early spring and then that tends to taper off through summer just because not many people are, are using them in the heat of summer. And then we will be offering grain spawn on a more regular basis. And then I am hoping, as I've been trying to get into more educational things, I'm hoping to have an online workshop that will be on the website sometime around April. Uh, we've always wanted to do an on-farm workshop to help people learn to grow mushrooms because the in-person and just like the intensive is so much better than me just telling you all the ways that things go wrong yeah. and the simple procedures of how you're supposed to do it and then you trying and failing on your own. So we're trying to develop a series of online you know, kind of web series videos as part of an online workshop for home cultivators in particular that goes through a lot of the things that we talked about today in a lot greater detail. Very cool. So, again, folks, the website, sunhandsfarm.com. And, uh, Sean, man, I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Yeah, it was great to be on, Jack. Great to talk to you. I've been a fan of the podcast for a long time and happy to hopefully give something back. Well, that was a great interview. Um, 
I have a feeling there'll be more than a couple people inspired to take this on. And I bet there'll even be some people to develop some small businesses and side hustles or expand existing food production businesses with this. I, I think this is a fascinating world to be in. And I meant my comment to him that, like, I would love someday to put together a conglomerate of producers. And, man, I'd love to have a mushroom producer in that and, and be able to put together something that I just don't have time to do on my own. And that's another opportunity up there, guys, right? It really is. Like, there's so many opportunities that people fall short on capitalizing on because they think they have to do everything themselves. Um, you might be able to find somebody that's already producing mushrooms in your area. And maybe if he could sell more mushrooms, he would make more mushrooms or she would make more mushrooms. And maybe you're the person that can find the market for them. And then maybe you're the person that can do one thing into that market, but better than anything else, you can market into it and you can put together a group of people. And all of a sudden you're in a food box of the week club or something like that you're running and you're making money with. And the rest of the producers can just focus on what they're really actually good at, which is producing. Just another way to look at this. Uh, it is it is a time in history right now where fortune favors the bold. Kind of tying back into our quote of the day, courage is the first virtue that makes all other virtues possible. This is a time to be bold and decisive in your actions, to do something with your life. Stop. So many people right now need to stop living on pause. If you're waiting for this to be over, like I was saying yesterday, if you're waiting for this all to be over, to act You're missing the greatest opportunity in human history. Opportunity is never higher than when problems are at a peak. It's a quote for me, I guess. I don't know where else. I don't know where I heard that anywhere, but uh, I think that's a pretty factual statement. With that, if you like the show and the work that we do, and you want to help support the show uh, and my work, just do something really simple. You're online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. No matter what you buy, if you start there, you'll help support us. Doesn't matter what it is, whether I've reviewed it or not, as long as you start there. Um, the item of the day, though, today is the Century 24-Hour Mechanical Timer. Uh, this is like the simplest to use, easiest to use, most foolproof little timer there is. And it, it allows the most simple form of automation, which is on and off. Whenever I talk about automation, I'm always like, what would you do if you didn't have to do it? I got that from my buddy David. It's a solid statement, man. It, it does open your mind. And there's so much you can do just by being able to turn power on and off. And what it lets you do is turn power on and off in 15-minute increments. If you want to run it for four hours a day, you can push down all the buttons for those four hours, turn the timer to the current time, plug it in, turn it on, and go. Right? If you want to be intermittent on and off, you can do that. Anything within 15-minute increments. You just push out a pin, that 15 minutes is on. You push the pin up, that 15 minutes is off. That's that simple. And I brought it around today because I recently did a video. For all of you guys that like hydroponics, aquaponics, etc., or are thinking about getting into them, one of the more complicated issues is with ebb and flow systems and bell siphons and various other siphons, hose siphons, etc. And Every instance that I've seen of people trying to fix the problem with stuck siphons where the water either ends up stuck at the bottom or the top, there's some really reliable stuff, but sooner or later, you have a failure. And it always happens at like the worst time. Like the day that the siphon's going to stick with the water all the way at the bottom, right, is the day that's 105 degrees. That's the day that's going to happen, right? Um, When is it going to stick all the way at the top when it's really humid out and that extra moisture starts to cause your plants to rot? That's when it's going to, trust me, right? The timer method and double bulkhead method that I use for ebb and flow now comes from the hydroponic space. I've not seen it 
at all in the aquaponics space. I'm the only person I've seen put out any content on it in the world of aquaponics, and it is foolproof. And this little $8 timer is the key to making it work. So I've added my video, No More Stuck Bell Siphons, Ebb and Flow That's Flawless, to this right up today. You want to check this out because I'm going to tell you something else about Ebb and Flow. Let's say you're like, I'm never going to do hydro. I'm never going to do aquaponics. Okay, so what if you had a seed starting system, you had all your plants and little pots with, with soil and all, and what if you could water them from the bottom like clockwork? Well, with a tray, and they sit in the tray, and you run this system in that tray, you can. And maybe you only need it, if it's there in soil, maybe you only need to water them like four times a day. So on for 15 minutes, off for four hours. You'll never forget. This does so much. I don't know why it's not being used in aquaponics more. I don't know why it's not being used more uh, for people who are simply watering plants and doing things like that. It is phenomenally easy. I, it seems to confuse people a little bit. I think it's because it's so simple. But I, the video I did, I think, will completely clear it up. So even if you don't need these timers, check the write-up on this one today because this is a skill set I think you really want to add to your repertoire. Remember this about skill sets, too, like being able to build things, put things together, etc. You don't know that you're going to need it until you need it, right? So if you know how to do it, it will probably be the case that sometime in the future something will come up. You're like, this is the solution to that. The more arrows in the quiver you have, the more you can do, right? The more items in the wardrobe, the more you're able to dress for any occasion. That's the way to think about skill sets like these. This is five minutes and you'll understand it. So check it out even if you don't need a timer today. With that, let's uh, also remind you, you can become a member of the Survival Podcast, Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. The big thing you get is a ton of discounts. And those discounts are on a lot of things you're probably going to buy anyway over the, over the year. You use the discounts, you get your money back at least. Most people make money on their membership. So it just makes sense to be a member. TheSurvivalPodcast.com. Click on the Members tab to learn more. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. We have a song today by Meatloaf. Uh, it's not Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. It's not on the Bad Out of Hell album. It is uh, probably a song that... That most people who even fancy themselves being kind of fans of meatloaf haven't heard. I think it was released in 2015 or 2016. And it's called Wolf at Your Door. And boy, it, it was released, you know, five, six years ago. But boy, it's a song for today. It's really about how people believe in the concept of the American dream. And I don't mean the bigger dream, right? Like, I think the bigger dream is a fine dream. You know, you should be able to go out and work for a living, build up something and have something of your own. Like that, that, that real freedom. But what I mean when they say they believe in the American dream, they actually believe that all the people that are part of like the government and the corporations and everything are actually kind of, you know, all for the American dream too. And they, they this is why people go off and fight wars when they could have stayed home and been much happier people. Because they believe in something. But what you find out over time is the thing you believe in, no matter how noble it is, the people actually behind it are not doing it because they believe in it too. They're doing it for profit, gain, and power. And sooner or later you start to realize that the entire thing is a manipulation to keep people from doing the most basic things that humans should do, acting in our own self-interest. And I know that sounds crazy because you've been convinced that acting in your own self-interest is selfish. It's not. 
Because it is in your best interest not to make other people into enemies. It is in your best interest to be a good member of a good a member in good standing of multiple communities. It is in your best interest to be courageous when others are fearful. Like what's in your best interest is all those virtuous behaviors. But it also means then we don't go casting our lot with others who are not on our side. Politicians are thieves. War masters are thieves. They're thieves. They steal our life force. They steal our wealth. They steal everything. While we think they're on our side. That's the wolf that's at your door. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Trouble!